We're going to be in the uh, Gospel of Matthew today. We're going to start in chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 18. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, you're welcome to do so. If you don't, don't sweat it. We're going to have the uh, scriptures on the screen for you. Verse 18 begins this way. It says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Let me ask you a question. What's your normal morning routine? All right, what do you do in, in the mornings? Do you wake up and maybe have a delicious, uh, caffeine-filled, beautiful dark cup of coffee? Right, you do that? Um, or maybe, maybe your routine consists of getting up and checking Facebook or um, scrolling through sports scores from the night before. What, what is your normal morning routine? Do you have a, a Bible study or a devotional that you read? Do you spend some time in prayer? What does your morning routine look like? So um, a few weeks back, uh, I come into the office. Uh, it was one of those days where, like, miraculously the stars aligned, and I got to be in here a little bit early. Um, but when I got in, uh, it wasn't long after that, I, I got a message on my phone that uh, a church member was sick and headed to the hospital. Okay, so my normal routine when I leave the office is, you know, I'll take the whirlwind of papers on my desk and I'll try to organize them a little bit. Uh, maybe I'll shut down... Uh, the screen on my monitor. I'll um, go check the thermostat out in the hallway. I'll sign out at the uh, receptionist desk, like all those kind of things. However, when I got that call, my habits, my regular routine, well, they kind of went out the window, right? You and I both know that changing our habits or changing our routine requires uh, a lot of intentionality. Like if you've ever tried to stop smoking or tried to stop saying bad words, like that doesn't necessarily come easy. It takes a lot of work, except in the moment of a crisis. When there is a crisis, um, you drop everything and you respond. For the ancient Jews, the most important thing that one could do in the morning was to recite the Shema which is an ancient Jewish prayer that you can find for yourself uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you were a good Jew, that was the way that you began your day, every day, with one exception. Ancient rabbis allowed for one circumstance to take precedence over the beginning of the day by reciting the Shema, and that is the death of a man's father. You see, it was understood that a man's father, when he died, the son had such a strong obligation to give him a proper burial that it came first. It came before everything else, even the recitation of this super important soul-centering prayer. So, what Jesus suggests then in Matthew chapter 8, is all the more unsettling, all the more curious, all the more shocking. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
How could Jesus be so insensitive as to provoke a grief-stricken seeker to forego a proper burial for his dad? We are beginning a brand new series of sermons today that we've entitled Jesus Is. And today's title specifically is Jesus Is Challenging. And what we need to understand at the outset is that Jesus' arrival on the scene of our lives is the crisis moment that shakes us out of our habits and rattles us out of our routines. In this passage, Jesus is raising the urgency of his ministry and placing loyalty to his cause, the proclamation of the kingdom of God above everything, including cultural expressions of family loyalty and love. It's also possible Uh, like as you dive into this text a little bit, it's also possible that the father isn't uh, quite on death's door just yet. And he's telling Jesus that he will follow him one day, someday in the future after his father's passed and he's uh, free of all his family obligations. In his commentary on Matthew's gospel, William Barclay observes that many Middle Eastern cultures even today We'll use this kind of language that burying your father can be understood as fulfilling all one's family obligations and duties you know, to your parents until their death, which may not occur for many years to come. But Jesus' urgent challenge remains. Follow me now. Escape this society of death or you likely never will. To give you a little bit more perspective on this whole burial thing, if you'll recall in Genesis chapter 50, it opens up with the death of Joseph's father, a guy named Jacob. All right? And we're told uh, in that passage that the embalming process took 40 days and that all of Egypt mourned Jacob's passing for 70 days. It's only after this period of mourning that Joseph asked the Pharaoh at the time, to take his father's body back to his homeland to give him a proper Jewish burial. From the time that Jacob took his final breath to the time that he was transported to the place that he was to be buried, we're likely looking at over two months, maybe close to three months. Now make no mistake, Joseph laid Jacob to rest deliberately. He took his time. This was important to him, sacred to him. There was nothing more important on his calendar. There was nothing more pressing on his horizons. But Jesus suggests, I think, a shift from the important to the urgent. In the ancient world, there were were soldiers who functioned as messengers, and they were called heralds. They represented the king directly, and often they announced his desire to visit a city or a town, possibly even a a far-off nation. However, uh, if circumstances were a bit more hostile or where the relationship wasn't a friendly one, the herald would arrive ahead of the king with terms of peace. Think about this for a minute, all right? Let's say we found ourselves in this exact circumstance. Let's say uh, America wasn't the military juggernaut that we are. And let's say you woke up tomorrow 
and you looked out your window as you're kind of getting ready for work or, or getting ready to head out for the office, and you noticed tanks driving through your neighborhood. You noticed armed vehicles coming down your street and wrapping around your cul-de-sac. And on the top of one of these tanks, there's a man with a megaphone or a, a bullhorn. And at the top of his lungs, he's shouting, Join us or die. And on the side of the tank there, you see maybe a, a Russian flag or a Chinese flag. And again, you hear, Join us or die. Join us or die. Now, you might be uh, one of those families that have you know, like a little armory in your basement or back in your closet, you know, because it's Harrison County. I know some of you. Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, But here's the thing. Even if you are one of these families that feel like, all right, come on, China, let's see what you got. Um, Even if that's you, you still have a decision to make, do you not? You still have a, a choice to make, right? You have the choice to run, or the choice to fight, or the choice to pledge your undying allegiance to this new king and his kingdom. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we have a similar scene that takes place. It's uh, Jesus screaming at the top of his lungs, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now hold on a second. You're probably thinking, Frank, wait, back up, just, just one second. Um, this is probably not exactly the same kind of scenario that you're describing, right? I mean, were we really enemies of God? I mean, think about it, Frank. God loves us, right? Because he loves everybody. Are you suggesting that we were God's enemies? And that Jesus was functioning as a herald, as a messenger that's making way for the kingdom of God? It is true that God loves us, loved us, loved those people. And he proved that he loved us by making terms of peace upon Jesus' arrival. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 makes it undeniably clear. It says this, For if while we were God's... What's that next word? Say it with me. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. See, here's here's the thing. Um... Jesus' coming created a moment of crisis. Or at least it should have. Jesus' arrival on the scene of our lives, like Jesus' arrival on the scene that day for that man, it should have created a moment of crisis. But has it? Has His coming and the coming of His kingdom forced us to run or to fight Or to pledge our undying, unwavering allegiance to this new king and his kingdom. Make no mistake, if it hasn't done one of those things, then it wasn't a moment of crisis. Crisis moments rattle us out of our ruts, wake us from our complacency, and arouse us to action. We watched a clip a few minutes ago from the movie The Dead Poet Society. Where Robin Williams, he's a, he's a professor at this private school. And he's just trying to make... A very simple point. The point that he's trying to impress on his students is to take advantage of the moments that they have right in front of them today. He showed them pictures of people just like them, young and full of life and filled with incredible potential. 
They believe that they're destined for great things. And then he just asks them point blank. Did they seize the opportunities that they had? Because today, they're worm food. The wise person doesn't fixate on the important at the expense of the urgent. I'm going to say that again. The wise person doesn't fixate on the important at the expense of the urgent. From the beginning of uh, January, from the first Sunday in January, over and over and over, as a, almost a mantra or our motto, we've said that we are going to be known for making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's why we exist as a church. That's the commission that we were given by Jesus before he ascended into heaven. That's what we want to be known for, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. What I want us to consider as we move forward is what does this sense of urgency look like for those of us who want to be disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples? And the fact is this. We must stop putting discipleship off on a personal level. We must stop waiting for a time off in the distant future when we're more free to follow and obey. Make no mistake, every single one of us in this room has important things, important details, important circumstances that we feel like we need to attend to in our lives. Every single one of us has important things going on. But obeying Jesus' command to follow Him and make disciples is urgent and it must take priority. Don't fixate on the important at the expense of the urgent. So dads, let me ask you a question. How are you discipling your families, your wife and your kids? How are you leading them in a growing relationship with Jesus? Because it is nobody's responsibility except for yours. How you doing? Well, here's here's the thing. I, I don't know a whole lot about Jesus or the Bible just yet. Okay. That's, I mean, that's understandable. Well, what are you doing about that? Well, but here's the thing, you know, like the, the little lady and I think maybe even the kids, they, they, they already know more about that stuff than, than I do. Okay. Does that absolve us or d- does that keep us from initiating? I mean, let's be honest, men. Our wives probably know about, more about what's for lunch than we do, but that won't stop us from asking, Right? Parents, wives included, because ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook today. Are you training your children to follow Jesus even when it isn't easy or popular? Well, here's the thing. If, if I take this Jesus thing too seriously, the kids are going to realize that I don't always live up to God's expectations myself. Well, that's great. Well, that's, that's fine. That's good. You know, the only people in the scriptures that we read about that are constantly meeting the expectation are the Pharisees, and they were pretty far from God in reality. It's good that our kids see that we don't always make the cut, right? It's good that they recognize that we aren't perfect and that there's grace that's extended to us too because there are going to be moments in their lives when they need grace extended to them, right? Well, but... I'm just not comfortable doing this. Like you said, Frank, it kind of goes against the grain of culture and I don't want to, you know, it's just hard. That's the point. Jesus is challenging. 
You may have noticed that we're not publishing uh, some of the numbers that we have in the bulletin the way that we've done in the past. Um, it's not an accident. It's not an oversight. Uh, this was actual, um, actually, it was strategery, if I can borrow a term from George W. Bush. Um, it's not to be secretive or sneaky. The fact is, I stood up here on the first Sunday of the year and I told you, look, I don't want anybody to misunderstand what our goal is, how we're defining what a win is, okay? It's not meeting budget every week. It's not more people in the room this week than last. That's not how we're defining what a win is. Our goal, our Miami Beach, our destination is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. That's how we're going to know if we're headed in the right direction. Did you know? That since December the 24th, since Christmas Eve, we've baptized 14 people in this church. Now, and we've made it really clear, that, and that's worth celebrating, right? We've made it really clear that like, baptism isn't the end of discipleship. It is the beginning, right? And we're ecstatic. We're, we're elated that there are 14 people that are willing to pursue a relationship with Jesus. They're willing to follow him even though it's hard. About the statistic stuff. As far as the numbers in the bulletin are concerned, you can call the church office anytime you want to know those numbers. Again, it's not a secret. It's not something that we're hiding. But you know what some folks have done? They said if we don't publish the numbers, then they aren't going to give anymore. That's a truth that's uncomfortable. And it's heartbreaking for me. It's a reality that's made things tighter around here for ministry than they really need to be. What's made things even more challenging as far as ministry is concerned is still there are others in our church family who are waiting for a time off in the future when they're on better financial footing to start giving God their first and their best. I sent you a letter at the beginning of the year. It's your end of year uh, you know, financial contribution statement, you know, the one that you get for your tax purposes. I'll say it again today. I said it in the letter, and I will say it a million times in the future. I don't particularly care how much you give, dollar amount or percentage. But you have a right to know, and I have a responsibility to tell you that God deserves your best, and he is worthy of your first. He deserves it. He deserves your first and he deserves your best. And there will be times when following the example of Jesus, our Savior will sting. It will be challenging because Jesus is challenging. Our giving should be sacrificial because Jesus' giving was sacrificial. There will not be a time in the future when things will be easier, where things will be better, where it will be simpler. Don't put off following Jesus with any part of your life. Carpe diem, seize today. And here's my concern for Christians in culture. We have far too many believers and far too few followers. Jesus is challenging. Following him is countercultural, counterintuitive, and flat out hard, plain and simple, no other way to cut it. 
But if we don't follow him, then we are not his followers. If we don't embrace his urgent call, why would we expect anyone else to? A few weeks ago, Webby touched on what athletics seem to be doing to Christian families. How there seems to be this incremental systematic scheme to pull children and families out of corporate worship on Sunday mornings to swim or to play soccer, to play t-ball or virtually anything else. And I want to be really clear, so look at me. Perfect attendance to church does not a follower make. Your proximity to this building doesn't make you a better person, or a better follower of Jesus. However, putting worship of Jesus above everything else in your life absolutely does. If we're sending our kids off to play ball on Sundays just because they like it, or because we think it will improve their chances of getting some kind of scholarship one day and maybe ease the financial burdens of secondary education then I think it's probably time that we reevaluate our priorities. So let me be clear. I don't care how much your kid or mine happens to like playing soccer. If he's not falling more in love with the real Jesus, I'm not doing my responsibility as his parent. Now before you go too crazy... At the same time, there are so many families who need to hear and know and fall in love with the real Jesus. And that exactly, that's exactly where they are on days like today. They're at ball fields and swimming pools and in gymnasiums. And do we just expect that they're going to wander in here on their own? Do we expect that one day they're just going to have the epiphany and they're just going to show up here? Poof! I doubt it. I mean, I'm, I'm the preacher, but I, 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 it seems a little bit um, far-fetched and unreasonable to me. Don't hear me saying that the Spirit can't draw people because the Spirit draws people, but that seems a little bit unreasonable. It definitely seems unlikely. But if you're there with a purpose on a mission that goes deeper than just having fun on a warm Sunday afternoon, but to invest in people so they, they might come to know the real Jesus... God might just use you to change the lives of an entire family. What I'd hate to see happen is that any of our kids, yours or mine, accumulate impressive awards, trophies, and plaques to make amazing memories and to develop uh, out-of-this-world skills at the expense of knowing the man who died to save their souls and make them whole. No ribbon, no scholarship, no plaque, no notoriety will be worth that. They may be important, but falling in love with the real Jesus, following him wherever he leads, and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples is urgent, and it must take precedence. Jesus' calling of the first disciples looked like this. Mark chapter 1, verse 16 says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish 
for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. You can't read this passage of Scripture without noting the urgency both in the disciples and in Jesus searching for disciples. The real Jesus is challenging. He calls us out of the places where we are comfortable, and he calls us to do hard things. And the question that I want you to just wrestle with is what do you need to do to follow him? Is there something in your life that you need to let go of? For these men, they were holding on to their nets and they dropped them immediately. Think about what that meant for these fishermen. This was their, their source of life, their source of income, their source of sustenance. And they dropped it at once. Think about the comparison between the sons of Zebedee and the man we read about in Matthew chapter 8. They left their father in the boat with the hired hands to pursue Jesus. That's a stark contrast to the man we read about in Matthew chapter 8, to be sure. What is it that you need to let go of? It's important, but it's not nearly as urgent as following Jesus. Is there an uncomfortable conversation that you need to have? Look, coach, my kid is thriving under you. You're teaching him to do things that the last coach couldn't do. He's strides and strides ahead of where he would be. We're elated, but not at the expense of his faith. What can we do about the schedule? Is there a shift in thinking that might need to take place in your life? Where we don't just play soccer on Sundays to play soccer on Sundays. If we play soccer on Sundays, it's with a purpose, and that is to make Jesus more famous, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Is there a step of faith you need to take that might draw you out of your comfort zone? God deserves your first and your best, and you're willing to start giving that to him today, regardless if you're ready or not. And you're willing to lean into him, to trust him, to put your faith in him that he's going to deliver what you need when you need it. The real Jesus is challenging. He calls us out of those comfortable places to do hard things. Don't fixate on the important at the expense of the urgent. I want you to know that behind the scenes, working on a couple projects that we think will be uh, really helpful for helping you fall in love with the real Jesus and also give you an opportunity to start making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Prayerfully, these projects will do just that. But here's the thing. If we don't accept the invitation to follow Jesus right now, to seize this moment, to carpe diem, to seize the day, if we don't, if we don't seize these moments, then no amount of information, no amount of knowledge will matter. Don't put off the urgent call to follow Jesus right now. Jesus is 
challenging. How will you respond? Is Jesus coming into your life? Was that a moment of crisis? Or was it just another day? Was it just another decision? Do you want Burger King or McDonald's? Burger King. Nobody picks Burger King, let's be honest. Was it just another day and just another decision? Or was it a moment that changed your life forever? You may be in here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've never repented of your sins and began to follow Him. Well, I want you to know you can do that. You can start fresh today. You don't have to wait. You can seize the opportunity that's before you. Make no mistake, following Him will be hard, but you don't have to do it alone. Maybe there are things going on in your life that are just uncomfortable, they're hard, and you want somebody to talk to about them, or you want somebody to pray with you. There's going to be folks in the back that would love to do that. I'll be up here and would love to talk to you too. But if you have a decision to make, if today is the day that you need to start following Jesus, don't put it off. Lean into what the Spirit might be speaking to you so that you can accept His challenge and follow Him.